Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there arose a new king of Egypt who did not know Joseph, but he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal truly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh, Storhes, Pitim, and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter and with hard service, in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve the midwife as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the families feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. We pointed out that this second book of the Bible is not merely just a whole new story, but the continuation of the ongoing story of the Bible. This, you might say, is the 51st book, uh, chapter in the whole story. We have seen some of the promises made in the previous chapters, where and why we find ourselves in Egypt But you see, in the beginning of the book of Exodus is the mention of the sons of Israel. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. But what we can miss throughout the first and second chapters of Exodus is that this word son, or as the Hebrew bin, is mentioned over 11 times. In the ESV, it's only translated son, Six of those 11 times. But the other times, the people who have translated the Bible have translated it and translated it to people. Now, we can really see it doesn't really affect the translation drastically. You're not going to come out of Exodus with a whole other meaning there. But if you see that it mentions sons and this, this heightening attack that Pharaoh does, that Pharaoh is not merely just persecuting the people of God, 
and God's promises that are being attacked as he continues to, God continues to fulfill them through this persecution. But what we might miss is who specifically Pharaoh is trying to attack. And it shows that emphasis of that. The repetition that we see in this chapter shows, shows the specifics of this persecution. It's more than just a nation concerned about their nation's standing. But this warfare goes back right to the very beginning of Genesis. That's what we see here is the promised son, to begin with, the promised son. Now, right after the fall, Adam and Eve has sinned. God comes down to be able to find out where Adam is. Why are you hiding? Why are you naked? While the woman gave it, while the woman turns and turns to the serpent, and the serpent who was in the garden told me to eat of the fruit, and I ate. Their rebellion, but in, in Genesis 3.15, before God even turns to Adam and Eve to mention their, their, their punishment for their sins, the serpent is the one who is cursed. Adam and Eve are not cursed. God curses the ground. They have to work it and keep it. But he does not curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent. And God turns and turns to the serpent and says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The right here, this promise is not just the promise of the snake crusher, but the promise that there's ongoing tension between these two families. This promise of conflict because of the fall. Two families that are against each other. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve. But through this offspring of Eve will come a promised son who will crush the head of the serpent. You see this throughout the rest of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve have two sons. One is the offspring of promise and one is the offspring of uh, the serpent. What happens? Conflict between them. Cain kills Abel. Although they share the same physical parents, they're two different lines. Abel, the offspring of promise, is killed by the offspring of the serpent. This this persecution, this conflict ensues. But then the Lord gives Adam and Eve another son to be able to carry on this line of promise. Seth. You flip forward a couple more pages and you see Abraham and Sarah. God promises to give them a son, which is to be born to them. And the son will continue God's promise of the snake crusher. Well, what happens? Well, you got Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac have two different lines. If Isaac and Isaac has two different sons, Jacob and Esau, this conflict that ensues. So when you read then and you begin chapter 1 of Exodus and you read the sons of Israel and that they're increasing, we should not then be surprised that Pharaoh seeks to be able to destroy the sons of Israel. He seeks to be able to eliminate them and not the daughters. 
Again, it's not merely a concern for the physical strength of the sons. That this battle goes back further than Exodus chapter 1. The seed of promise is under threat. God's promise to be able to deliver his people after the fall is under threat. Now often Pharaoh is depicted, and one of the symbols that signifies Pharaoh is a snake. That's why what happens when Pharaoh, later Moses gets his stick and it turns into a serpent. The seed of promise under threat. And the seed of promise has constantly been trying to be eliminated from the seed of the serpent. But as we saw last time, is God does not stop fulfilling his promise. You see two promises in, in Genesis 3.15. The first is a promise of conflict, the promise of persecution. But also what you see is the promise of victory over the son of Eve, the son of the offspring of the woman, over the son, uh, the offspring of the serpent. The, the one who comes from the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will constantly strike at the heel, but the, the fatal blow will come from the offspring of the woman. And this is why understanding that this word son appears so many times in Exodus helps us understand the movement and progression of this story. Pharaoh is seeking not to destroy the people of God, but the sons of promise. What we will see is God fulfills His promise. God saves His sons that His promise might be fulfilled. And God is going to save the sons of Israel through a son of Israel. God, Moses actually will be sent to Pharaoh to say, let my God's Son, go, that he might serve me. We see here three times that Pharaoh seeks to be able to eliminate the sons of Israel, trying to put pressure. The first is that he enslaves them. He sets taskmasters over them to put a burden upon their backs. This, as we saw last week, was a part of God's promise to Abraham. But the second is that he, he assigns the midwives to be able to come and destroy the sons. It's interesting in the opening chapters of Exodus that we actually have five key women that play a, a vital role in how God works and redeems his people. And the first two, we actually find out their names but here you have Pharaoh, this great king over a great kingdom who is, who's over this great people, great and mighty. We, we don't know his name. We're just told that a new king comes. We don't know his name, and many scholars have debated this. But yet, we find out the name of these two faithful women, Shipra and Puah. 
That as, as Pharaoh comes to oppress the sons of Israel by making them his slaves, but what happens? Pharaoh's concern is that they might multiply and grow strong, and then they might escape. Well, they increased and multiplied. It's the backwards working of God's ways. That the in comes oppression and persecution from God's, uh, God, upon God's people, but what happens? Growth and multiplication. I think I used this example last time, but it's like going out and going to your driveway and putting weed killer all over your driveway. Not just a little bit, I mean dousing your whole driveway in it. And you come up and you wake up the next morning and there's more weeds. That's how God's way works. The world comes to be able to put pressure to persecute, but God's people flourish in that because God causes them to grow, not the opposition. And Pharaoh tried his first plan to be able to, to, make them tass, to make them slaves. But now it was time to implement his second plan. Have these female midwives try to eliminate the sons of Israel before they even get too old. Now a lot has been written about. Are these Israelite midwives? Are they um, Egyptian midwives? We're not told specifically. But we are told some things about them that are very important. The first is their names. We have no record in all of the Bible of who this Pharaoh is. In chapter 1 or later on in the book, there's a new Pharaoh that comes onto the scene. We have no idea, according to the Bible, which Pharaoh this is. But as we read about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, what we find out is we find out the name of these other people. Pharaoh clearly has a very important role to play in this story, but we never know his name. However, here we have these two women. They only appear this one short time in this chapter, and yet their name is written in God's word. The Holy Spirit, as he inspired Moses to be able to record the book of Exodus, he decided to be able to write down their names. Glorious thing to be able to think about. How God honors these women, these women, by writing down their name. The second thing that we see about these women is that they feared God. They feared God above man. They feared God above Pharaoh, this powerful, mighty man who clearly has the ability to be able to institute death penalty for any form of opposition. The sons of Israel have done nothing wrong at this point. He's worried about them growing strong and leaving, and thus he puts in this genocide to be able to eliminate all the kids. Now, it doesn't matter where they come from, if they're Egyptian, if they're Israelite. What, what it matters is that they fear God. 
This is their motivation. This is why they do what they do. Pharaoh's plan was very simple. If there's a son, kill it. If it's a daughter, you may let them live. But they were not concerned about what Pharaoh told them to do. They sought to be able to honor God. Now this is interesting because this is before we're given the Ten Commandments. So here you see the moral law written upon people's hearts. That a part of fearing God is the value of life, and specifically these midwives would not take the life of a child, even if the civil government enforced them or told them to do it. Morality is written upon the hearts. See this even in Genesis 9. But also I think you see something that's very important that I think society misses altogether. That here you have life, and life is life. To take the life of a newborn child is taking a life. And it might not seem so far-fetched, but soon there might be a time when we need to be able to stand up and explain that life is life. It's happening all over now where people seek to be able to redefine what life is in the womb and when does it start. That's not even a concept now that is discussed. All they see is a burden, not a baby. Across different countries and different places. Even now, that children can be taking their life even after the womb. That as Dr. Seuss wrote in Horton Hears a Who, a person's a person no matter how small. The location of a person does not cease to make that person a person. The dependence upon that person does not cease to make that person a person. And here these women are honored by God because they stood up for this value of life, even against the mightiest king in the world at that time. In the book of Acts, Peter and John are arrested, put in jail. And they said, whether it's for you to know, we must obey God rather than men. And here we see in Exodus chapter 1, the way that God saves his people is often through people standing up. That they could not put these children to death. Even if their jobs are on the line, their life is on the line, they would rather fear God and honor God than be, be afraid of men. And what we see here is God's favor that comes from this action. It doesn't matter what Pharaoh thinks of their action. 
Now, some have explained that the midwives come and explain this lie in verse 19. I think that we have no, no indication of that that's what they did. Maybe they weren't as fast to go to, to deliver the baby. Maybe there were only two midwives to serve all of the Israelite women. I think it's unlikely, but that's a possibility. Now we have no mention of Pharaoh's direct response to the midwives. Because it doesn't matter. God blesses them. We don't know how Pharaoh responds to what these women do. What, what we notice is how God treats them. God gives them their own family. And we're told exactly why that happened in verse 21. Because they feared God. These two heroes are ones who feared God, not Pharaoh. This is exactly what happened to Peter and John in Acts. And I think what you see is that's exactly how the world works today. They seek to be able to go after children. To teach and instruct them the ways of the world. Thus is why it's important that we teach and instruct the children about the Lord. To teach them to be able to fear the Lord. To teach them to walk in His ways. To know His ways. When we're on the roadside, when we're sitting down at dinner, when we're driving in the car. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a vital truth, and then we're told that we need to instruct our children of this. But last week, we see Pharaoh's third attempt, not only just the sons born, but every son. It didn't work the second time to get the midwives to try and eliminate the sons. Slavery didn't stop them from multiplying. So Pharaoh tried his third and final method. Get his people to destroy the sons of Israel. He commands his people to take every son and to cast them into the Nile. Pharaoh goes to great length to be able to have all of the sons of Israel wiped out. Again, another horrendous act which Pharaoh seeks to be able to wipe out the promised son altogether. You must assume that during this time that it's a horrific moment of death for these young children. need to think about this as we read through the book of Exodus. As we think about the signs and the punishments, which these acts of judgment which God does specifically against Pharaoh and his people. The last two are found when God sends forth the angel of death to be able to take out the firstborn of those who do not have the blood on the doorposts. But also the one who has commanded Pharaoh, who commands the sons of Israel to be thrown into the Nile, will be the ones who will drown themselves when God's punishment overtakes them. 
Pharaoh tries to destroy the sons of Israel by enslaving them. It didn't work. Pharaoh tries to destroy them by the midwives. That didn't work. Third time Pharaoh tries to destroy the sons of Israel. It didn't work either. Because if you continue to read in chapter 2, now you have a man of the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Pharaoh said, every son must die, and yet we're told the next line that there's a son who is born. The promise continues. And even if you read to the very last chapter of verse in chapter 2, during those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people, but here's the translation, the actual word is, and the sons of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out to help. Their cry to rescue them from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people, but it's tra- God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew. This promise is not dead, but is just getting started. The promise of the snake crusher still lives on, even after the Pharaoh seeks to be able to strike the head or the heel of the Son. And then it doesn't take long for us to understand how this works in the New Testament of the true Son. This gospel connection that here Jesus is born after the wise men come and worship and bow down and leave, Herod seeks to be able to destroy the son. Joseph's told this in a dream in Matthew chapter 2. When this angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child, to destroy him. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Israel, I called my son. The Old Testament called Israel God's son. And yet Matthew sees this is not only as the reference to God's son as Israel, but a shadow of Christ. That Christ is in fact God's true son. That Jesus goes through his own exodus event. But notice the tactic of Herod, which is the exact tactic of Pharaoh, to be able to try and eliminate the son, the true son. Verse 16 of chapter 2 in Matthew. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That here, the the threat of the snake crusher is still there. The offspring of the serpent still tries to eliminate the offspring of the woman of promise. But just as Pharaoh's attempts failed, so too did Herod's attempts fail. And here comes that promised son of God. 
that snake crusher who will finally come. Genesis 3.15 says that he, specifically male singular, will crush the head of the serpent. That's exactly what Christ did, that Christ came and defeated the last enemy, death. However, Paul even states in in Romans chapter 16 that Christ will soon crush the head of the serpent. So what we see is this promise of Genesis 3.15, this conflict, persecution, still lives on. Christ is the true Son, but God... The Son became the Son of Man that we might be adopted as sons of God. Read through the book of Acts and see how the seed of the serpent is still attacking the seed of the promise. See how Herod's great-grandson seek to be able to still attack and persecute God's people. He puts to get death James by the sword. But just as they seek to be able to try and attack and and persecute his people, what happens? Acts chapter 12. The word of God increased and multiplied. And we don't have time to be able to unpack all the parallels now. But with all this in mind, go and read Revelation chapter 12. Here is the glorious thing of the Bible. This image of a seed. What do you do? You push a seed into the ground, in the dirt where there's no light. Cover it with its weight, surpassing amount. What happens? It flourishes, it grows. Even in the darkest of situations, when everything is against us, this small little seed will burst forth out of the ground. It makes its way upward and outward. The ground has no power to be able to stop this seed from growing. Pharaoh seeks to be able to destroy the sons of Israel, but God makes them grow, multiply. Herod seeks to be able to destroy the king who is born, but God makes him grow, and he makes him victorious over death. Now what you see even today, The Christians are forced to go underground to avoid persecution, death, to do church in the dark, to arrive at different times that people might be able to um, have uh, various, you know, so it doesn't raise suspicion. But guess what? The promise of God still grows. Over the last 40 years, the church in China has grown faster than anywhere in the whole entire world. Forty years ago, there was about one million Christians in China. Now there's a hundred million people. In Africa, there was estimated about nine million Christians in 1900. In 2021, there's estimated to be 685 million Christians in Africa. With that number to increase to about 760 million in 2025. This surpassed all other estimations of about 630 million to 700 million in 2025. 
years ago. What you see is the, the story of Exodus is a great and glorious story of the promises of God and how he deals with his people. The promises of how persecution may arise, but yet God's people flourish and grow. That God's promises cannot be undone. God's promises cannot be stopped. The gates of hell will try to beat down the gates of heaven. But they will not prevail because Christ is building his church. A glorious thing to be able to think about when we face persecution, when we are driven into the ground, when we are at risk of losing our jobs or our livelihood, of being cast outside of society. We have the glorious promise that God's promise still continues, that he does the growing and the building He does the multiplying. What a glorious thing to be able to pray. That we might be able to be faithful men and women in that day as we see God's promises grow even in the darkest of situations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise for your sovereignty over all things. Lord, even in this this chapter where we see the sons of Israel been attacked, Lord, your promise still grows. Lord, that it doesn't matter what plan that they threw at your people. You are the one who caused them to grow and to flourish. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters across this whole world that are persecuted for your name's sake, who are put in situations where it's faith or death. Lord, and we pray that you would give them courage to be able to stand up, to be able to live, by faith and not by sight. We pray for ourselves in the coming years or days, if we might even face persecution in, this, in our life, that you would give us the courage to be able to stand and fear you above men, to stand up and see your glorious promises, even in the darkest of places. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.